This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. When we talk about hope, we're not talking about a wish or a dream or a goal. We're talking about a stake that we put in the ground that anchors us to God's character of faithfulness. When we talk about hope, when we talk about our hope being in God, we're talking about a confident expectation based on God, based on his word, based on his character. And so when we talk about hope, uh, our, our theme verse that we have this year comes from the book of Hebrews and says that Jesus Christ is a sure and steadfast hope and an anchor for our soul. Uh, for you and I, we have hope uh, in the person of Jesus Christ. And I'm talking about today, uh, our, our topic today is is hope from a full commitment. And so if you're going to find the hope that is found in Jesus Christ, I love the song that we sing, Shout to the Lord, nothing compares to the promises that we have in you. But we find that to claim the promises of God's word, we need to make sure that we put our full hope, our full faith, our full confidence in the person of Christ to receive that. And so we'll take a look at that this morning. Psalm 18, we're going to start in verse number one. If you have never read through the book of Psalms, I'd highly encourage you to read it. Uh, If you read five Psalms a day, you could read through the entire book of Psalms uh, in a month, and there's just so much good stuff there. Regardless of what you're going through in life right now, you will find yourself in the Psalms. Uh, if you need a, a source of comfort, the source of comfort that I always run to is the book of Psalms. There's so much good stuff, especially when it comes to the topic of hope. And so uh, today, Psalm 18, we're going to start in verse number one and read through verse number six. I will love thee, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer my God and my strength in whom I will trust, my buckler and the horn of my salvation and my high tower. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from mine enemies. The sorrows of death compassed me. The floods of ungodly men made me afraid. The sorrows of hell compassed me about. The snares of death prevented me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried unto my God, He heard my voice out of his temple, and my cry came before him even into his ears. As the pastor of who we call over the last eight, almost eight and a half years now, and my wife and I served in full-time vocational ministry in California for 10 years prior to this, so for almost two decades, I've spent my life trying to help people follow Jesus, Uh, and that's what I want to do with every single waking moment of every single day for the rest of my life, help people find and follow Jesus because it'll change your life like nothing else. It's really exciting to see someone who latches on to the truth of God's word, to see someone who makes a full commitment in their life to Jesus of, hey, I'm tired of living things my own way. I just want to follow Jesus. I'm tired of trying to figure life out on my own. I submit everything to Christ and really walk it out day by day. And to see the change that takes place in a person as the old man dies and the new creature becomes, it's one of the most fascinating things you'll ever see in your entire life to watch that process take place. I'm thankful that we're part of a church where people are still being saved and baptized and discipled and still growing in their faith and still latching on to their faith and beginning to grow in that. Please understand that doesn't take place at every church in America. We're part of something special that God's doing and we don't ever need to take that for granted. 
We're part of a church where we get to see that type of change, what the Bible calls a metamorphosis, right before our very eyes. And there's nothing more exciting to see than that. But at the same time, there's nothing more disappointing and discouraging to see someone who comes and latches on maybe for a month or two and still continues to dabble in the things of this world and dabble into sin and before you know it, swept away, never to be seen again. That's frustrating. That's a discouraging. What's the difference? Well, Jesus gives a parable and he basically says the seed is the word of God. And so we know for a fact that the seed is good, guaranteed. But he said there's four different types of soil that it can fall on, where three of those types of soil, the seed never really had a chance. But there's a good soil that once it hits, man, it blossoms and blooms and brings forth really, really good fruit. It's frustrating to see sometimes people with soil problems. They, they take the word of God, they, they try it for a little bit, and it's just not for them, and they pass on and move on to the next thing. That's frustrating. But I'm telling you today, that if you want to change your life forever like you never have before, become the good soil. When you're confronted with the word of God, obey it, believe it, receive it. Whatever God tells you to do, just obey it and fully submit yourself to God. It'll be the best decision you've ever made in your entire life, I promise you that. This church is here today because Angela and I about... uh, almost uh, 22 years ago now, made a decision uh, that we would follow God to the ends of the earth, whatever he told us to do. And then, you know what he told us to do at that time? Just go to church faithfully. He would be happy with that, right? And so we started small. But again, over time, as God began to move and God began to grow us as Christians and we began to be more committed to our faith and we basically gave ourselves fully over to a commitment to Christ, man, everything in our life changed and I know that God wants to do the same for you. And we'll take a look at what the Psalms has to say about that this morning. We see first and foremost in this passage of Scripture, verse number one uh, in Psalm 18 this morning, I, love, I will love thee, O Lord, my strength. We see first and foremost in this passage that loving God is the foundation of the Christian life. Loving God kind of sets the foundation for where we go from here. And and again, when we talk about loving God, it's important that we define our terms. First of all, we only have the capacity to love God because God loved us first. The Bible says that you and I cannot know God, cannot love God if he hadn't loved us first. John says in 1 John chapter 4, verse number 19, we love him because he first loved us. And so before you and I were ever born, God loved us dearly John chapter 3 verse number 16 Jesus says for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life God loves primarily to us by sending his son greatest gift you and I would ever receive in our lifetime in our eternity would be the gift of God's son Jesus Christ because see you and I we are born into this world with a problem, and it's called sin. It's not called shortcomings or bad habits or things that we wish we wouldn't do. It's called S-I-N, sin. That's our problem. You know what plagues the world today? It's not racism. It's not, you know, consumerism. It's not, you know, socialism. It's not uh, politicism. It's not any of these other isms. Our problem, the root problem of everything is sin, And so because of our sin nature, because we've sinned against God, we've all broken God's law. The Bible says that there's none righteous, no, not one, myself included. Because we've broken God's law, God says there's consequences for that. It's appointing unto man once to die, after that the judgment. 
Every single person, the day they take their last breath on planet Earth, will stand before a holy God, and we will be judged. Now, if you and I are judged according to how we lived our lives, we will come up short 100 times out of 100 because we're not good enough to make it to heaven on our own merits. We're not good enough to make it to heaven on what we've done or how good of a person we are, how religious we are, because there's none righteous, no, not one. And so, friend, if you die in this earth trusting in your own goodness to make it to heaven, you'll be turned away at the gates of heaven and cast into the lake of fire, which the Bible says burns for all of eternity. This is the second death. That's why when the Bible says the wages of sin is death, it's not just talking about physically dying. It's talking about a place called hell. It's the worst news anybody could ever receive. And so sometimes people say, okay, well, wait a minute. How can a loving God send people to hell? Well, that's the great news about it is that God would never send anybody to hell without the opportunity for redemption. And so Romans chapter 5, verse number 8, but God commendeth or demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Those four words are so critical. Christ died for us. Because I was supposed to die, Jesus died for me. I was supposed to be punished, Jesus was punished in my place. I was supposed to endure the wrath and punishment of God because of his hatred for my sin. And Jesus Christ took the wrath, punishment of God upon himself. The song we sang this morning, uh, The Power of the Cross. This, the power of the cross, Christ became sin for us. That's actually from the Bible. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So Jesus took upon himself all the sins of mankind. God punished him by putting him to death upon the cross, not because he had done anything wrong, but because the sins of you and I. And Jesus Christ said, it is finished. And he gave up the ghost. He had made a full payment of my sin and for yours. And he rose again the third day, victorious over sin, death, and the grave. And he's alive forevermore. Praise God. But here's the good news. You and I can be forgiven because of that payment that he's made on the cross. It's not a matter of being religious. It's not a matter of doing religious works. It's not about doing good stuff or trying to do better. It's a matter of having your sins paid for. And when you get to heaven, there's not going to be a big movie screen showing you all the wrong things that you've done, and God's going to kind of weigh it out to see whether or not you make it into heaven. When you show up to heaven, the question will be, who is paying for your sin? If you pay for your sin, friend, you're, you're going to be separated from God forever in a place called hell. There's no second chances. But if Christ has paid your debt, then God sees you as righteous. He sees you as a son, as a daughter, as an adopted part of his family, that there's no questions asked what you've done in your life. It's a matter of come in. I'm glad you're here, son. I'm glad you're here, daughter. Not because we're good, but because God is gracious. We don't get to heaven because we've done all the right things. We get to heaven because Jesus has paid it all, and all to him we owe. And so again, when we look at God's love, no greater display of God's love than on the cross. And friend, if you will be saved, there's not a church in the world that can save you from your sin. There's not a religious act that you or I can do to ever save us from our sin. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, that we're saved by grace through faith, that it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so you couldn't earn heaven if you wanted to. But 
God has said anyone that will come to him in faith and repentance can be saved. Jesus says to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, no man shall see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. And so, friend, have you been born again? Has there been a time, a day, a place in your life where you confessed your sin to God? God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that your son is the only way to heaven. I know that he's died for my sins, and I'm asking him to save me today and forgive me of my sins. Have you had a time like that in your life? If not, friend, you're in danger of God's judgment. But God loves you too much to allow you to go to hell without being loved and warned. And so God sent his son Jesus to love you, to pay the debt for sin on your behalf. If you've never been saved, or if you're unsure of what happens after you die, please don't leave here today without knowing for sure your sins are forgiven and heaven is your home. Now, that gives us the capacity to be able to love God. You see, God loves you so much that he'd be willing to sacrifice his only son on your behalf. That's God's love displayed towards you. And God, the Bible tells us that God's kindness, God's goodness will lead us to repentance. I see how good and gracious God is. I know how terrible of a human being I am, but I also know that God chooses to love me unconditionally. I recognize the wretchedness of my sin, but God chooses to call me his son. That draws my heart towards God in a heart of worship, love, and adoration. Now, it's important that we define terms before we jump too far into this. Love is not an emotion. So many times people get that wrong because we've seen too many Hallmark movies and we've read too many Valentine's Day cards and things like that. And we get the idea of love wrong, that loves these hearts and arrows through hearts and stuff like that. That's not love. Love is not a feeling. Love is not an emotion. Love is a choice that I make to put another person above myself. If you choose to love God, it's a choice that you're making to put God above your own wants and needs. That's love. And God loves you so much in the fact that he was willing to give his son to redeem you and I from the mess that we've made of our lives. And so if you choose to love God, it's not this ooey-gooey feeling that you have towards God or anything like that. It's a choice that you make. I choose to put God first in my life. I choose to walk in a way that would honor and please him. And you and I have the capacity to love God because of his love for us. But if you and I are truly loving God, the way that God commands us to. Truly loving God actually spills out of our life into a love for other people as well. And so it's not self-contained. It actually will end up affecting the people around me. Now, the converse of this is true as well. If you decide not to love God and you decide to live a lifestyle of sin, please understand your sin spills out to the people around you and it damages everybody around you. Your sin is a cancer that will continue to grow and will damage and devastate the lives of every single person that you're around. But the love of God in you will automatically, if it's done the appropriate way, begin to touch the lives of people around you. Now, 1 John chapter 4, verse number 20 says this, if a man say that I love God and hateth his brother, he's a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And so the Bible says if you and I truly love God, we'll truly love our brother. We'll truly love our neighbor. Jesus takes it one step further on the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, hey, you've heard before that you should love your neighbor. 
You love people that love you. Even unsafe people do that. That's easy. You love people that are nice to you? No problem. Everybody does that. But I'm asking you to love your enemy. I'm asking you to pray for those who despitefully use you. That's when you'll begin to know that you love God and your love for other people. Now, if you're an introvert like me, commandments like this are really kind of um, unsettling, I guess you will. Like, I can love God all day long. I can read my Bible. I can pray. I can sing. Uh, I can love my wife. That's really easy. Loving other people is a little bit more difficult because that requires interaction with other people, right? I don't really care for that aspect. And so, again, I'm an introvert by nature. I know for some of you, are like, oh, that's not true. I promise you it's totally true. Ask my wife. Um, I'm an introvert by nature, and you probably picked up on this already, but I'm also a little bit socially awkward as well. Like, again, I struggle sometimes with conversations and being able to carry a conversation and good eye contact and standing up straight and things. I'm just weird, okay? Uh, and so being socially awkward plus being an introvert by nature makes it really, really difficult to love other people. It just does. And so when uh, Angela and I uh, had just gotten married, we moved to, to Honolulu, and uh, we were trying out some different churches. We'd gone to a, to a church uh, over by the airport. Uh, it was a good church, nice people and stuff like that. And they said at the end of the service, they said, hey, uh, after the service, uh, downstairs in the, uh, the kitchen, we'll be having some cookies and some Kool-Aid. We'd love for you to stop by and say hello and stuff like that. And she looks over at me and, like, nudges me, and I was like, mm-mm, nope. And she was like, come on. I was like, absolutely not under no circumstances whatsoever. And she was like, well, I'm going to go. You can go if you want to. I'll, meet you. I'll be in the car. And so she was like, you're really not going to go. I am totally not going to go. That's a fact. And I didn't. I didn't. And, um, and so then we, um, we went to that church for a few weeks, and I never went to the, the juice and cookie time or anything like that. And so then one time the, uh, the pastor and some people stopped by our house, and it was way awkward because it's just like, hey, I've been purposely avoiding you folks for a really long time. And like, you just like show up and like, wow, it was awkward. And so... Um, we talked for a while. Super nice people, nothing against them. And looking back, I get it. I totally get it now. It was just weird for me where I was at. And so uh, that church didn't work out for some doctrinal reasons, and we went on to another church. And so we're at another church, and uh, this church had a, a handshaking time. It was about 45 seconds, and so uh, nothing like what we have here, about 45 seconds or so. But it was still really weird. Like, I don't, want, I don't want anybody to come up to me. I don't want anybody to shake my hand. I don't want eye contact with anybody. And so for the first couple weeks, I just stood there with my hands in my pockets staring at the ground. And there were a couple of people who didn't take nonverbal cues well. And they're like, like, hey, man, like, stick your hand down like this. Bro, I am purposely avoiding you. Don't talk to me. And so that didn't work very well. And so here's what I did. This is genius, right? Handshaking time, I would go to the bathroom. And just that way, I didn't have to talk to anybody, right? It was a, a, a one-seater bathroom. So you just go in there, and you lock the door, and you just stand there. <laughs> stand there my hands in my pockets, look at myself in the mirror. And then I hear, okay, as you make your way back to your seat, that was my cue. And then I thought to myself, if somebody hears me in the bathroom and then I walk out, like they'll think like, what's he doing in there? So I would, no lie, this was my ritual. I would run the water, I would turn the water off, I would rip off a paper towel and throw it in the garbage can and then I would walk out. That way if somebody was behind me, they'd think I was washing my hands. I didn't wash my hands, I didn't do anything in the bathroom. I'm just standing there. And I would come out and Andrew was like, are you serious? I'm totally serious. And then it's just like, Brother Steve's going to come out up today and close this in a word of prayer. Man, I'm grabbing my stuff. I'm out the back door. I'm in the car with it started before Brother Steve says amen. Like, I'm done with it. And Andrew's like, what's wrong with you? It's like, hey, look. Mind you, this was 20 plus years ago. Hey, look, I've lived two decades of my life, and I don't know any of these people. I can live two decades more, and I still don't need to know any of these people. Like, seriously, these people are inconsequential to me. 
Like, I don't need this in my life. I come, super spiritual, right? Hear me out. I come to hear the preaching of the Bible, and I come for me. I don't need all the other stuff because I'm so spiritual, right? Oh, my goodness. I look back at that, and it's just like, oh, how embarrassing. And so then here's a crazy thing. Angela and I began to have a desire to be more like Jesus. We decided somewhere along the way to make a full commitment to Christ. That, hey, I want to obey Jesus in every area of my life. And then as I begin to study what that means, I see, oh, no, Jesus loved people. That's not good. (laughs) Even worse, Jesus didn't just love them from afar. Jesus spent time with people. Oh, my goodness. This is not good at all. And so you know what I did? Angela and I were going through a discipleship program that absolutely changed our lives. And, and the man that was discipling me, I was just like, hey, dude, I, like, I don't like talking with people. I don't like being around people. I don't like the handshaking time. I don't like people asking me what's going on. Like, I don't like, I don't want any interaction at church whatsoever. What should I do? And uh, he was like, well, you know, if you're going to be like Christ. No, I know all that. I don't want to do any of that. He was like, okay, you just need to pray. Okay, what do I pray? Pray and ask God to change your heart. And see if you will. Okay, I'm willing to do that because, again, I want to be obedient to what God's told me to do. So I put it on my prayer list. Pray God will change my heart to love people. Craziest thing in the world. I decide to myself, I'm not going to the bathroom this week during handshaking time. I'm just not going to do it. I'm just going to stand my ground. If somebody comes and talks to me, I'll be friendly. I'll be nice. But other than that, I'm like stuck like glue in the place that I'm at. But I'm not going to leave. How about that? And I found there were some really nice people that sat around us. Like, really nice people. And, like, after church was over, we began to talk to them. And after church was over, they were like, hey, we're going to go to, uh, there used to be a Tony Roma's up here in IAEA across from Pearl Ridge Mall. Like, hey, you guys want to go to Tony Roma's? Or, Absolutely. And so we went and had lunch with them, became some of the best friends we've ever had in our life. And they've been sitting 10 feet from me for six months. And what was the problem? The problem was me. And so, again, you can't say that you love God if you're not willing to love other people at the same time. And I'll tell you, fact, I did not love God because I was so enamored with myself. It was a pride issue, really it was. My heart was in the wrong place. It was focused on me. What can I get out of this church service? What is in it for me? What's in it for, what benefits me from this? And if there wasn't an answer to that, then it was a wash. It was no good. It was worthless. But then everything shifted when it was like, hey, what if worship really isn't about me? It's about the glory of God. What if me being in church is to help me to be a better Christian, but also at the same time to serve other Christians? What about that? It's just like a light bulb went off, and it's just like, Oh, okay, I get it. I get it. This makes sense now. Everything in my life changed from that point forward. Jesus, when he's talking to Peter in John chapter 21, Jesus has been crucified. He arose again, and then he finds the disciples out fishing. They're out on a a morning fishing, and Jesus is sitting on the shoreline. He's making breakfast for everybody. And I'm thinking that Jesus probably was making some coffee while he was there on the shoreline too. And he had plenty of creamer and plenty of sugar for people who don't drink their coffee black. Uh, and so, because that's how Jesus would do it. Uh, and so uh, Jesus is making breakfast there for everybody. Everybody comes in and he's talking with Peter for a minute. He says, hey, Peter, do you love me? Yeah, of course, Lord, I love you. Good. I need you to feed my lambs. Okay. Peter? Yeah, Lord. Do you love me? Lord, of course I love you. 
Why? Okay, I need you to feed my sheep. He asked him a third time. The Bible says that Peter was grieved in his heart. Now, some people believe, and I wouldn't disagree with that, that maybe the Lord asked him three times because he had already denied him three times earlier. I don't know, but interesting choice of numbers there. Jesus asked him a third time, Peter, do you love me? Peter's grieved. Of course I love you. Why do you keep asking me that? Okay, I need you to feed my sheep. And so Jesus challenged Peter three different times not to have ooey-gooey feelings towards him, but to love people on behalf of Christ. That's how you love me, by loving other people. This might blow your mind, but Christ arose and ascended to heaven 40 days later. Jesus Christ sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven, and he's coming back one glorious day very, very soon. But until then, get this, Jesus Christ has no physical hands and feet on this earth to do acts of love and service through. So he created, get this, it's going to blow your mind, the body of Christ to show the love of Christ to the world that we live in today. And get this, the body of Christ gathers at least once a week on the first day of the week, Sunday, but then it gets dispersed throughout the community to live, love, and serve all week long to show the love of Jesus to other people. So I start off today by saying this, you can't appropriately love God unless you love other people as well. You see, biblical love, true love, is action-oriented. It's not emotion-based. And again, so many times we get mixed up, and I know tomorrow's Valentine's Day, and I hope you bought a, a thing full of candy that's in a heart shape and all that other stuff. And let me just tell you this, I love Papa John's pizza, but the heart-shaped pizza's a rip-off, just know that, okay? I'm, so, I'm sorry, some of that you that hurts your heart, but they take like a regular pizza and they cut the sides off of it. It doesn't even look like a heart. And so, <sighs> I was saying something. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> sorry about that. Action-oriented. It's not feelings. It's not emotions. It's what I choose to do. And again, if I choose to love my wife, that's going to show up in real tangible ways by the way that I speak to her, the way that I serve her, the things that I do for her, the things that I don't do and the things that I don't say. My love for her comes out in that, not just like, well, of course you know that I love you, baby. It doesn't work that way. My love for God is just not a matter of showing up to church on Sunday morning and saying, oh, I love God. Prove it. How can you point to your life over the last seven days and prove your love to God through your actions? If you say that you can't, I would go so far as to say this, you don't love God the way that he expects to be loved. Because it's not about emotions, it's not about feelings, it's about the actions that we do. You see, our love for God is not a feeling or an emotion. Our love for God is lived out by obedience to him and love for others. That's how we love God, obeying. Jesus says this, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you don't love him, don't keep his commandments. Simple as that. If you don't want to keep his commandments, you don't really love him. Simple as that. Jesus says, if you love me, feed my sheep. John says, we can't say that we love God if we don't love our brother. doesn't work that way. So again, God has specific ways in which he chooses and desires to be loved. And none of those is emotion-based. None of it. It's all action-based. So we take a look at 1 John chapter 4 again. Verse number 19. 
We love him because he first loved us. If a man say that I love God and hate his brother, he's a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, he that loveth God also loveth his brother. For whosoever believeth that Jesus Christ is born of God, everyone that loveth him and begot, loveth him also is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and keep his commandments. So again, see here in John 4, John chapter 5. By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God, keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. Obedience and love for others. Jesus goes so far as to say this. Um, A a lawyer came to Jesus and tried to trick him and catch him in a trap. He says, uh, hey, master, what's the most important rule in all the Bible? What's the most important law that we keep? And that's, that's kind of a trick question, isn't it? Imagine going up to a police officer and saying, excuse me, me, officer, can I ask you a question? What's the most important law? If you had to choose one law that you have to keep um, that's on the books, which would you choose? You might think murder. Okay, murder is, is not okay. That's off the table, but say theft, stealing, kidnapping, robbery. All those are okay. Well, they're not okay. Well, how are those different than murder, right? It's kind of a, a quandary. But here's the thing. You can't trick God. You can't trap God. God always has an answer for everything that ails you every single time. Jesus, what's the most important commandment? Jesus says this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as you love yourself. He goes on, deep statement he makes next. On these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. The entire Bible is summarized by loving God and loving other people. Do those things, everything else works itself out. And you say, well, it can't really be that simple. Take a look at the Ten Commandments that were given to Moses. Every single one of them is either about loving God or loving your neighbor. Every single one of them. There's not a single one that's not. And so again, to say that I love God but I don't want to love my neighbor just doesn't make sense. Angela and I had the privilege of uh, leading a single adults ministry when we were in uh, Lancaster, California. Uh, my friend Henry's here today. Henry, say hello. Uh, and his wife here. I, I knew Henry when he was a single guy like 13 years ago. And uh, I haven't talked to him in about 13 years. And I saw him today. And he was like, I got a wife and two kids. And I'm in church on a Sunday morning. I was like, bro, you made it. Like, look at you, you know. I was worried about Henry for a while. But he made it, you know. <laughs> but I remember we had a, a, a class activity one time. It wasn't Henry. He's another knucklehead in our group uh, that we had. Different knucklehead, not that knucklehead. And uh, we're sitting there talking. I'm talking with this guy. This guy's new to, to our church. He had been attending for a few weeks. And he told me how he got saved as a teenager and things like that. And so he's trying to come back to his faith and yada, yada. And so we were talking for a bit. And uh, he began to uh, talk about his relationship with his girlfriend. I said, how long have you been dating? And he said, six months. And uh, he said, yeah, we just moved in together. And I said, well, that's a bad idea. And he's just like, oh, you know, it's, it's the best for us right now. I said, okay. And I said, uh, are you guys having sex? And he was like, yeah, but yeah. I mean, we probably shouldn't, but yeah. And he, if I live to be 125, the words that he said next, I will never forget as long as I live. He said these words. You know, I really love God. I just don't want to obey him. And I said, friend, you don't love God. You can't say that. I, I, actually, I can. 
I can 100% say that. No, 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 no. Like, like, my prayer time is so good. I feel the Spirit wash over me. Okay, first of all, that's not even Bible talk, okay? The Spirit wash over you. Tell me what that even means because I've never had that experience before. Is it like taking a shower or something? Like, I don't know. Oh, I, I hear my favorite worship song on the radio and my eyes get all misty and cheer up. It's like, okay, everything you're talking about is emotion-based. Everything. And if you were talking about a girl, I would tell you what you have is not love, it's infatuation. It's not real love, it doesn't last. But you're talking about God, and I'm going to tell you that's not real love. And he's like, oh, it is. No, it's not, because real love is based on obedience. And you, abs- the statement that you made is categorically 100% false. When you say, I love God, but I don't want to obey him, then you don't love God. Because God's not looking for feelings, he's looking for action. And so again, when we take a look at what the scripture says, again, it's important to understand that we have to love God the way that he wants to be loved. And to truly have hope and peace, if we're looking at Jesus Christ as our source of hope and peace, to truly have hope and peace, you have to be fully committed to it. You can't dilly-dally around in spirituality. You can't show up to church a couple of times a month and expect to have hope and peace in the depths of your soul. It just doesn't work that way. And let me just tell you, I've tried it both ways, and God's way is always best, guaranteed. You see, a half-hearted, sporadic commitment doesn't bring peace to your life. It only brings confusion. Again, I've got to figure up when, out when a situation comes up. Am I going to follow my gut with this, or am I going to follow biblical wisdom? Am I going to follow God's way with this, or am I going to do this the way that I've always done it? i, I got to figure out, and, and, oh, I'm not really sure what to do with this situation, you know? I know this is probably the right thing to do, but it doesn't really make sense, and so maybe I'll do what makes sense instead of what's right. And, and you, you just leave yourself in this quandary of, like, I'm not really sure which end is up. You don't really have a compass that always points towards true north because you're using your own rationale, you're using the wisdom of the world, and you're also trying to sprinkle on a little spirituality to it. It doesn't work that way. You know, sometimes people say things like, oh, I know I'm dating a guy that's unsaved. I'm, I'm praying about what I should do next. You don't have to pray about it. Break up with the guy. The Bible says, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Period. Done. End of story. You don't even have to pray about that. I'll make it super simple for you. Oh, I know, but a lot of people will get hurt if that happens. Okay, again, you're not fully committed to Christ if you're wondering whether or not you want to obey him is the bottom line. And so again, when we take a look at what Scripture says, James chapter 4, verse number 4 says this, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? That means makes you an enemy of God. Where there, whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. Think about that. You want to walk in the world? That's fine. God is against you. You want to follow after worldly wisdom? Go for it. Your father is having none of it. And it's interesting the, the phraseology that James uses here. James 4.4. 4, you adulterers and adulteresses. When you leave your father, when you leave Jesus to chase after the things of this world, you are an adulterer who has been unfaithful to his covenant commitment. That's heavy. You know why? Because who is the bridegroom of the church? It's Christ. And if Christ is our bridegroom to whom we should be faithful in a marriage covenant commitment and we go after the things of the world, you're an adulterer and an adulteress. 
You say, well, that's kind of harsh language, isn't it? <laughs> that's not even the half of it. Read the Old Testament. Children of Israel, they go after Baal. They go after false gods. They go after idolatry. You know what God calls them? Does anybody know? Nobody wants to say it because it's polite in church, right? He calls them whores. You've gone a-whoring after other gods. Like, wow. Like, that's like next level words. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the picture. When you and I leave Jesus to go after the things of the world, you're a whore to the things of this world. You're an adulterer to your covenant commitment that you've made to the bridegroom, which is Christ. So again, let's not think to ourselves like, oh, I'm doing my best. I'm going to church, you know, twice a month. I think I'm doing okay. You're an enemy of God. Heavens, you're not doing okay. You're an adulterer. You're an adulteress. There's no, you don't get a pat on the back for making it a couple of times a month. Jesus Christ asks for a full commitment from you, not a partial half-hearted commitment. And Jesus isn't looking for good church attendance from you. He's looking for disciples, committed followers of Christ. Hey, look, if you make it two out of four services to Sunday morning, it's better than zero. I'll give you that. But Jesus isn't looking for you to show up to church a couple of times a month. He's looking for you to live for him each and every single solitary day of your life for the rest of your life until you get to see him face to face. That's what he wants from you. That's what he expects of you. That's why I'm so frustrated to my core of churches today who just want to gather a crowd. Let's talk about stuff and have a funny little skit and, and let's laugh a lot and tell some jokes and at the end, we'll bring it all down and talk about the way that God loves you and if you're here today, God loves you just the way that you are and just keep on keeping on. Away with that garbage. Christ is calling men and women to repentance. Christ is calling men and women to discipleship. And here's Jesus' words. If any man should come after me, he should first deny himself, take up his cross, and then follow me. There's nothing convenient about that whatsoever. None of it. But we weren't called to a life of convenience. We weren't called to a life of comfort. We were called to a life of commitment that's the difference and so jesus isn't looking for you to just like oh i'll try to make it to church maybe next week no 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 he's looking for you to live for him today tomorrow morning your alarm clock goes up wake up and live for jesus tuesday your alarm clock goes off wake up and live for jesus that's what he's expecting of you and when it comes to following jesus one foot with jesus and one foot in the world leaves you one foot away from abandoning your faith altogether. One foot in, one foot out leaves you one foot away from just totally throwing off your faith altogether and not following Jesus. And look, let me just tell you this, again, in my personal experience, if Christianity is something that you're dabbling in, you're kind of walking around, kicking the tires, taking it for a test drive to see if you might or might not enjoy it, you probably won't be here six months to nine months from now. You just won't. Because again, if you're looking for a life of comfort and ease, you won't find it here. If you're looking for a life of contentment in Christ, oh my soul, your spirit will overflow 
You'll be like David in Psalm 23, my cup runneth over, despite the fact that you prepared a table for me in the presence of my enemies, my cup runneth over because you're so good. That's what I'm talking about, about commitment. And so again, don't get the idea that I'm saying like, oh, you know, commitment's hard, it's negative, it's awful, it's terrible. No, it's the best thing you'll ever do with your life is fully commit to Christ. And look, it's one of the most discouraging things as a pastor. This is a small island, man. You, you can't get away from people on this island. It's a discouraging thing for me to be at Safeway and see somebody who used to t- attend our church four years ago. Hey, man, how's it going? Uh, things are all right, you know. You guys still going to church? Nah, nine times out of ten. <clears throat> nine times out of ten. Not going to church anywhere. <clears throat> Bummer, what happened? One foot with Jesus, one foot in the world. And then it came a lot easier to just put the other foot in the world. Because here's the thing. Following after flesh is easy. <clears throat> Every single one of us this morning, when your alarm clock went off, you had the temptation of hitting snooze. I'm tired. I don't want to go. There probably won't be parking. We're going to be late. The kids are frustrated. The kids don't even want to go to church. <laughs> kids never want to go to church. Right? And if you have kids that want to go to church, two thumbs up for you, you're doing something great. But here's the thing. A million and one excuses you had to not show up this morning. <clears throat> and you chose to obey the Spirit. Praise God for that. But there's, you know, three dozen people who attend our church. I'm not saying that everybody who's not here today didn't obey the Spirit. There's, but there's every single Sunday people who are like, oh, it was a hard week at work, and so I didn't want to be there. We're having trouble in our marriage. I didn't want to be there. Or, I was really tired. didn't want to be there. And these days, you know, if, I think I might have possibly had a sore throat on Friday, so I think I should probably, <laughs> I think I want to play it safe. Yeah. It's a crazy world we live in, man. But here's the thing. Those with a marginal commitment, they're not going to be the people that are here five years, 10 years, 20 years from now. They're just not. Because the pull of your flesh, the pull of this world is too strong to combat with a half-hearted marginal commitment to Jesus. It just is. And look, your flesh is so much easier to obey. Here's the thing. You have to be intentional in following Christ. You just have to go with the flow to follow your flesh. But to follow Christ, you have to stand up and say, no, the buck stops here. From this point forward, things in my life will change. I will obey Christ. I will submit my life to Christ. From here going forward, come what may. And that's a stake that I put in the ground that that's never going to change. You've got to intentionally do that. You don't just do that by nature. You drift by nature. You fall away by nature. And we can't afford that. So we have to make a decision to be intentional I remember Angela and I, when we made full commitment to Christ, man, it changed our lives forever. I got tired of doing the whole, like, going to church on Sunday and living for myself six days a week. That just wasn't fulfilling for me. There came a point where Angela says, hey, we really need to either do this or not. And I hate the fact that my wife had to to provide spiritual leadership in the vacuum of my absence of spiritual leadership. I'm, I'm embarrassed by that, to tell you the truth. But I praise God for a godly wife who had the guts to say what needed to be said. And I said, you know what? You're right. Let's do it. And she said, okay. From that point on, we didn't miss a church service unless somebody was dead or in the hospital. If there's something going on at church, we were there. We were involved. We were engaged. We didn't know what we were doing. 
And so I was talking to the assistant pastor. I said, hey, we're trying to figure this whole thing out. We don't really know what we're doing. He said, hey, let's go to dinner this Friday night and talk about it. Great. So we went to dinner with Pat and Jane Smith, and they began a process that we didn't even know nothing about at the time called discipleship. And they taught us, here's how you get your feet out of the world, and here's how you get both feet in with Jesus. And let me just tell you this. Our lives were never the same after that. They committed to probably an 18-month process of loving Angela and I and, and taking us through those times and teaching us and training us what it meant to be fully committed to Christ. And I'm telling you this, my life was changed forever. This church exists because a Pat and Jane Smith put their arm around us and said difficult things to us that we did not want to hear. But I praise God for them. I praise God for the fact that I came to a point where I had to own my faith for myself and had to grow up and be a big boy and make big boy decisions to follow Jesus instead of just going with the flow and showing up to church on Sunday and hoping something happened. Again, if you take a look at Psalm 18, that we're, our text this morning, if you take a look at verses 1 and 2, I'm going to read these verses a little bit differently, and I want you to see where I'm reading them differently. I will love thee, O Lord, the strength. The Lord is the rock, the fortress, the deliverer, the God, the strength, in whom I will trust, the buckler, the horn of the salvation, and the high tower. Some will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, so shall some be saved from their enemies. See the difference there? Verses 1 through 3 are completely and totally personal, aren't they? I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and so shall I be saved from my enemies. I love the Lord. He is my rock, my salvation, my strong tower, my buckler, the horn of my salvation. It's a personal ownership here. Here's what David knows. I know who God is, and God knows me. He's my God. He's not my grandma's God. He didn't get passed down for me from my uncle who used to go to church a lot and prayed for me all the time. No, no, no. He's my God. Personal relationship that he has. And you see, being fully committed to Jesus means trusting him in the midst of difficulties. Take a look at verse number three. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, so shall I be saved from mine enemies. The sorrows of death compassed me. The floods of ungodly men made me afraid. The sorrows of hell compassed about me. The snares of death prevented me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried unto my God. He heard my voice out of his temple, and my, my cry came before him even into his ears. You see, when difficulties come in life, if you've been fully committed to Christ, you know where to run. You know what you're supposed to do. I'm just supposed to pray and kind of sit back and wait and see what God does. I trust him. He's in charge. And that brings a peace to me that in the midst of difficulties, in the midst of trials, all I have to do is pray, be obedient, and sit back and watch the show. That's the type of confidence that David had. That's the type of confidence that you and I can have when Jesus is our hope. But let me just tell you this. If you play around with Jesus every now and then, and again, it's just a sporadic church attendance thing as opposed to being your life. You won't have an anchor for your soul. You won't have peace in the midst of a storm. You'll never have the hope that the Bible speaks of because it comes from owning your faith and being obedient. That's where the good stuff comes from. And you see, when we're walking with Jesus, when we fully committed to Jesus, prayer for us becomes a source of great comfort. 
I'll admit to you there's been times before when my prayers felt like they didn't make it out of the room. When there's times where I prayed and prayed and prayed and I felt like nothing was happening. I admit. But then there's been other times in my life where, man, prayer was just such, such a life giver, such a shot in the arm, such wind in my sails because I knew that God was listening. And that's a good feeling. I think of what David says in uh, verse number six. I, I love this psalm for a multitude of reasons. First of all, there's a source of grace, hope, and comfort here. No matter where you are in your life, if you're on a mountaintop with God or in the, the lowest valley that you think that God forgot your address, you will find yourself in the Psalms every single time. And so that's why regardless of what you're going through in life, if you need encouragement, always run to the Psalms. Always, always, always. But I love verse number six because the Psalms were written as, as songs to be sung in, in public worship together, in private worship as well. But they're also books of poetry and the imagery that the psalmists use is just so rich and it's so deep and it's so powerful, just the, the words that are used. And again, I'm not a big literary buff and things like, you know, ancient European literature would bore me to sleep. But when I read stuff like this that's my life, it's just so powerful. You look at verse number six and it says, he cried. And to think about this, his, his prayer didn't just go up to heaven. His prayer didn't just go into the temple where God resides. His prayer didn't just go up before God. It did all those things, and it says that in that verse. What does it say at the verse, end of verse number six? Where did his prayer stop? In his ears. What? Like, I cry. And my prayer just doesn't go up there somewhere. It goes in the ears of God, my Father. And he says, I got this, son. I got it. Man, that's powerful. I'm not just praying and hoping that it makes it up there somewhere. I'm not praying some prayer that somebody wrote somewhere, and I'm not trying to count off on beads how many times I've prayed it. I'm praying from the depths of my soul, pouring out my guts before God, and my Father is up there in heaven going, yeah, I got you, son. I hear you. I'm with you. I'm for you. I got this. That is so powerful on 10,000 different levels. That's the power of prayer. Wow. My Father hears me when I pray. It's not just up there somewhere. It's going in the ears of God himself. Man, such a source of comfort. Psalm 28, verse number one, unto thee will I cry, O Lord, my rock. Be not silent unto me, lest if thou be silent to me, I become like them that go down into the pit. God, I want you to hear my prayers, and if you, don't, if you didn't hear my prayers, I might as well be dead like everybody else, is what David says. Jesus says this about our Father. Ask, and it shall be given unto you. Seek it, you'll find it. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. Jesus goes so far as to say this. If you, as a sinner dad, know how to give good things to your kids, how much more does your heavenly father give to you? If you ask your, your kid asks you for bread, are you going to give him a rock? Come on, you're better than that. Think how much better your father is. But here's the thing. When we've been sleeping with the world and in an adulterous relationship with the bridegroom Christ, it's very difficult to come to the Father, isn't it? 
when I've been slumming in sin and involved in all the garbage that the grace of God delivered me from, it's very difficult to turn right around and feel the power of prayer, isn't it? Absolutely. But man, when I'm fully committed, I'm walking with Jesus, I'm not perfect, but I'm doing my best. Man, prayer is one of those things that, like, I don't know how people make it without it. I was meeting with somebody a couple of weeks ago, and they were going through some really rough stuff in their life, and I... I, I Here's the crazy thing. They were going through some of the most awful things I've ever heard of in my entire life. I never experienced those myself, but I said to them, I have the answer for everything that ails you. Everything. There's no way. It's not that simple. It, it really is, I promise you. You know why? Because the Bible has the answers. And I said, if I wasn't a Christian, if I didn't have the Bible and I did not believe in the power of prayer, I would not know what to tell you. Hey, you're on your own with this. Like, best of luck. Hope it works out for you, but I got nothing for you. But because I am a Christian, I have the promises of the Word of God, and I have the ear of God at any moment that I need it. Man, there's power found there. There's a lot of hope that's found there. The great thing about Jesus is when, I, when Jesus is my hope, I can leave the outcome up to Him. Again, David says, I shall call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and so shall I be saved from my enemies. Well, how's he going to get saved? I don't know. I just know that I will. Okay. Hey, I had a lot of bad stuff going on around me. Death is on every side, but I cried unto God, and he heard me, and my prayer went into his ears. That much I know. How I get delivered, don't know. Frankly, don't care. Just know that he's in charge, and I trust him. Being able to rest in the sovereignty of God should bring us great hope and peace. It's a good thing to know that God's in charge. It takes the burden off of me. Because I don't know about you, you're probably more spiritual than me, so this has never happened to you. But there's sometimes where I come to situations that I try to manipulate, maneuver, scheme, stack the deck in my favor, because I'm not really confident that God really is going to get it done the way that I would get it done, right? Nobody, nobody connects with that. Okay, just me. Got it. But again, so many times, again, my faith wavers that I try to scheme and, and, and call in favors and, and get everything directed the way that I want it to because I struggle to trust God with the outcome. And look, when I get what I wanted, it wasn't really what I wanted anyways. God had something better for me down the road that I should have just trusted Him. I remember Angela and I were in a California, and we were serving on staff at a church. We were young and new in ministry. We're still pretty young, but uh, just saying. Um, we were young in ministry, put it that way. And uh, we had uh, the boys, and we decided to upgrade from the car that we had to a minivan. First time we'd ever bought a minivan. And like, have we really gotten to the point? Could we get like a really cool SUV? Well, we were broke, and we couldn't afford a cool SUV. So uh, min minivan it is. And so we crossed that threshold where you got to buy a minivan. Uh, and so we were really excited. We wanted to save and pay cash for it because we didn't want a car payment. And we finally saved and scraped together $3,000 to buy a minivan. And so we're on Craigslist looking left and right on minivans and stuff like that we found a uh, minivan in LA it was a white Dodge town and country and so uh, we looked at it we'll go down there to look at it and get inside it's got like the upgraded wood grain along all the panels and everything and uh, like wow it didn't have the DVD players but it had a CD players like wow look at this and uh, we take it for a test drive just like wow look at all this space back here and the kids can throw their backpacks in the back when they get out of school man it was awesome it was exactly what we wanted we paid cash for it we drove it away we're minivan owners 
you know, I go out to get uh, in my car the next day to go to work, and I'm just kind of standing there looking at the minivan in the driveway. Like, hey, look at that. It's a minivan. How about, never thought we'd own a minivan. Here we are with the Dodge Town and Country. How about that? Get in my car, drive to work, and she takes the kids, drops them off at school, and they open up their own sliding doors on the side and jump out. It's like, wow, look at that, you know? They get in from school, they throw their backpacks in the back in our minivan. What's up? Look at us. Life is good. This is exactly what we wanted, precisely. The next day, she calls me. Hey, I dropped the kids off at school. I'm right here uh, in front of the Walmart. And she was like, the, the red light turned green. And she goes, I go to go, and it doesn't go. Huh. Like, what happened? She's like, like you just rev the engine like it's in park or neutral. And she's like, it doesn't go anywhere. Okay, put it in park and like slam it back down in the drive. She's like, yeah, I did that. Do it again. Slam it back in. Doesn't work. Okay. Um, I said, does it work in reverse? She's like, I don't know. Let me see. She's like, yep, reverse works. Okay. Now put it down into the one that says L. So it puts it down into L. Did that work? That didn't work. Okay. Put it in drive again. Doesn't work. Okay. Can you drive home in reverse? And she's like, <laughs> no. Bummer. <laughs> Okay, and so we called our friend who was a mechanic, and he came over to take a look at it, and he's like, dude, your transmission's gone in this. And so, well, that's no good. And he's like, yeah. And so he's like, let me r run some numbers and see what I can do. Comes back. He's like, oh, you know, your transmission's gone, but this needs to be replaced at the same time, and your engine mounts are worn here and stuff like that. He goes, you're looking at, I don't know, $2,800. What? Dude, we just paid $3,000 for it. It was the last dime that we had. He was like, I could probably get you $1,000 for it if you want to scrap it. He goes, but like, that's the best you got. I was like, wow. So we ended up scrapping the minivan, and guess what? Back to a car again. Why? Because we found what we wanted, and we thought, this is exactly what I want. But then when you get it, you realize, oh, I actually wanted something that was reliable, too. I forgot to mention that, right? And so many times, we, there's these things in life that we think that we want, and we chase after those, and we fight, and we claw to get them, only to realize, I didn't really want that after all. I wanted something better. I say that because this, God's way is always better. You don't have to do it your own way. You don't have to do what you think is best. Just obey God, pray about it, leave the outcome totally and completely to him. Because here's the fact of the matter. When Jesus is my hope, the only thing that I want is his glory. That's it. I don't want what I want out of this. I just want God to be glorified. I don't want my way. I just want God's glory. When Jesus is your hope, you just want Jesus to look good. And again, when we live for God's glory, you'll never be disappointed. When you live for your own glory, man, you'll never be enough. You'll never measure up. You'll never be good enough. But we live for God's glory. Man, I just want God to be glorified through my life. You're facing a trial. I just want God to be glorified through this. Man, facing some difficult choices down the road, I don't know, I just want to choose whatever glorifies God the most. Hey, man, what's going on with you? I don't know, just trying to glorify God with my life. Man, that's a worthy goal. You know, Angela and I, uh, again, I served on staff at a church in California for 10 years, and God was using us in an amazing way. You know, we had the opportunity to uh, build, I served on staff of, with 120 other fine Christian folks, uh, one of the greatest churches I've ever known in my lifetime. Uh, and I had the opportunity to serve in singles ministry, and we were seeing people saved and baptized and discipled and growing, and I mean, it's just nuts what we were seeing God do. But then we asked this question, and if you latch on to this question, and you ask yourself this on a continual basis, I'm telling you this, the sky's the limit for you. This question, 
You might even want to write this down. How do I maximize God's glory in my life? What is the way that I can crank up God's glory in my life? What does that look like? Is there another opportunity? Is there another place that I can be used of God to a greater degree than what he's doing now. And let me just tell you this. Where we were at in California, we were super comfortable. We just bought a house at the end of a cul-de-sac. We told our kids, we're gonna live in this house for the rest of our lives. When you get married and have kids and come back for Thanksgiving, this is where we're gonna have Thanksgiving dinner at, right at this table right here. Man, don't ever tell God what your plans are because he'll shake them up really quick. We bought a dog. We put in a basketball court in the backyard. It was at the end of a cul-de-sac. We had a three-car garage so I could have a project car on the side that I was working on. Like, hello, like loving it. But here's the problem. We had capped God's glory in our life because we got super comfortable. So we began to pray. God, would you allow us to do something greater for your glory? Not for ours, so we can make more of our life or be uh, more of a, of a status for ourselves. God, can you maximize your glory through us? And God says, yes. And he led our hearts to a city that was in great need of the gospel. And it led us to a location in the heart of Honolulu. No lie, I prayed for three years that God, before we ever even moved back here, that God would give us an opportunity to plant a church in the heart of Honolulu like dead center to where everything is going on. And I'm telling you this, where we're at today at 1216 Waimanu Street, I think is probably as dead center to the city of Honolulu as you can possibly get. And they're 50 yards away from the largest shopping mall, outdoor shopping mall in the world. Hello. Did I do that? No, God did that. We had the opportunity to be able to, here's what I thought, no lie in my mind. I thought to myself, man, if we could just scratch together 75 people that would show up to church and on a Sunday, what an amazing work of God that would be. And I remember our very first Easter Sunday that we had. We had 99 people. And I thought to myself, we almost broke 100. Now, there was a guy that came in to ask where the, the noodle factory next door was. We almost counted him. But we didn't. We would have broken like triple digits in church. What? But like seriously, like I just said, I want God's glory to be maximized here. And I made like a really small sketch of what that looked like. And guess what God did? You know what God did? God did exceeding abundantly above all that we could ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. And he continues to do that day by day. People are continuing to be saved, baptized, discipled, growing in their faith, forsaking sin, walking with Jesus like never before. And let me just tell you this, that's special what God's doing here had the opportunity to share the gospel with a young man on Wednesday night who just had a lot of questions about life and a lot of questions about religion and things like that. And we went through the gospel. He accepted Jesus as Savior. And he says, do you have a, like some way that I can grow from now? Dude, you need discipleship. He's like, sign me up. Yes. This is what it's about. Maximizing God's glory. And you and I get to be a part of what God's doing here because God's chosen us to give him glory. Think about that. It's incredible. But you see, at the end of the day, we can't ride the coattails of somebody else's faith. At some point, we have to take ownership of our faith as our own. At some point, we gotta say, hey, this is my faith. This is my God. This is my strength. This is my horn of my salvation. I will call upon my God. You see, so many times people try to ride the coattails of somebody else's faith. Well, my wife, she's the one that grew up in church. I didn't, and so she's the spiritual one of our family. Uh, uh, uh. No, you don't get to do that. Grow up. Own it. And if you're a husband, you should be the resident theologian of your home. Somebody doesn't know something about the Bible, you figure it out. You get the answers that you need. Because God's called you to be the head of your home. 
fact. And so, look, you can't go off of somebody else's faith. Well, my dad and my granddad and my great-granddad were all Baptist preachers. God bless all of them for their faithfulness. What are you doing with your life? Well, well you know, it's, we, our whole family's been Christians. I'm not asking about your family. When you stand before God, He's not going to ask about your family. He's going to ask, what did you do with your life? And so we've got to own that at some point. And look, teenagers... At some point, you're going to have to grow up and you're going to have to make a decision that you're not just following what your parents told you your whole life. You believe this to be so in the depths of your soul because God's word said it and you own it for yourself. Not because mommy and daddy told you, because thus saith the Lord. You got to own that. And sometimes that's a transition for people. I remember, again, I went to church three times a week. If there was a service there, we were there. If there was a fish fry on Friday night, we were there. If there was a church cleanup day on Saturday, we were there. Always at church. I turned 18, joined the Navy, left home. Nobody called me the first Sunday that I was gone to say, hey, did you go to church today? Nobody, nobody was checking up. And so guess what? I didn't. And I like once every three months. And then it became kind of frustrating to go every now and then because you go and you hear a message that may or may not apply and you meet a bunch of people that you don't really know and you try to be friendly and you try to smile, but it feels kind of fake uh, because you don't have any commitment there. You with me? And so it just felt very unfulfilling. And so I thought to myself, maybe I'm just doing this whole Christian thing because that's what my mom and dad told me. So what else is out there? And so I began a a series of self-discovery for myself. And here's what I knew to be true. I know that there is a God. I know that beyond a shadow of a doubt. That's my starting point. Where do we go from here? And so then I began to do a little bit of research and stuff like that. And I'd heard people say before that God and Allah are the same thing. And Muslims just believe a little bit differently. And they're also the children of Abraham. And so what's truth? What's not truth? And so I went to Barnes and Noble and sat down, right? And I sat down with a copy of the Koran. No lie. I sat down and read it for like three or four hours. And as I'm reading through this, I'm like, this doesn't jive with what I know about God. And the deeper that I dig into kind of the Cliff's Notes version, because they had like, no lie, they had Islam for dummies. And so I take a copy of that and flip through that. It's like, oh, yeah, I see. They're not the same, okay? They might call, say they're the same, but they're not the same. These are different. I don't know what I am right now, but I'm not Muslim, okay? Then I, I, I grab a copy of, you know, the teachings of Siddhartha and Buddhism, tenets of faith, and things like that, being able to look through that. Okay, this is way too out there for me. I'm not a Buddhist, and cross that one off the list. So I am in the realm of what I would call Christian, okay? I never met anybody who is a uh, Jehovah's Witness, but I heard that they believe in Jehovah, and I do too. Let's read what they say. Okay, I'm not a Jehovah's Witness, because they don't believe the things that I know to be true about God. And so then the question comes down to, okay, then... Where is my source of truth? I can't go based on what I think or what makes sense to me. What is true? And if God really is out there, wouldn't he give us something that we have as true? And so I found it in where? The Bible. God speaks through his word. Okay, fine. So here's where I am at this point. I believe there is a God and I believe the Bible. That's it. And so I continue on my quest. And I went to a Catholic math, mass, and I realized I'm not a Catholic. 
uh, because there's a lot of things here that aren't found in Scripture and that don't follow the Bible. So I'm, I'm not a Catholic. I went to a Methodist church and I realized I'm not a Methodist. I, re- I went to a Church of Christ church and I realized I'm not a Church of Christ. And so then I'm whittling this down to the fact that I don't really know who I am or what I am, but I am a Bible-believing Christian. That much I know. And so then I, I pared it down to churches that follow only the Bible, not church tradition, not any extra stuff added on, anything like that, just the Bible. And then I found myself coming to my own conviction and conclusion as an adult man. I am a Bible-believing Christian by conviction. Now I need to find a church that fits the tenets of Bible-believing Christianity. And I came to the fact that I'm a Baptist by conviction because Baptists have historically simply just been a people of the book. And so I'm a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching Baptist Christian by conviction and it has no relation to who my parents are or what they taught me. It's mine now and you can't take it away from me. Everyone has to come to that point where they own it for themselves, not because somebody told me so. And so sometimes it's hard to watch your kids as they grow up and mature to kind of grapple with that, but it's a process that they have to go through. They can't be a Christian because mommy and daddy said they were a Christian. They have to be a Christian because they believe it to be so. And you might be sitting here today never having taken ownership for your faith as a grown adult. Today's your opportunity to be fully committed to a faith that you choose on your own volition, of your own will, because you believe God's word to be true. Everybody's got to come there. And so for us at Who We Call It Discipleship, one of the keys that we do that we start our discipleship program this Wednesday. If you've never gone through a period of discipleship, I'd encourage you to do that. Sign up for it. We'll show you how we do it at Hui Kala. When you finish, you get to take somebody else through the program as a teacher this time. And so I'd encourage you, if you've never done that, you can sign up for that today. I'm going to start partnering people up tomorrow, so if you want to do it, you need to do it right away. But every Christian should go through some form of discipleship. You should know what you believe about the Bible, why you believe it, and you should be able to defend it from Scripture. And if you don't, we can help you with that. But who we call it, we place a high importance on discipleship, teaching people the Bible, teaching people to be committed followers of Christ. Because look, at the end of the day, I'm not always going to be there to answer your questions about the Bible. You've got to know what you believe and why you believe it. At the end of the day, I'm not going to stand with you before God one day to give an account for your life. You're going to have to do that on your own. But I want to help prepare you to do that with joy, not with regret. And so, most important thing in the world, if you're here today and you don't know for sure that you're saved, you're not for sure, if you died today, if heaven is your home, please don't leave here without, today without knowing for sure that Jesus Christ is your Savior, not that you've been baptized, or not that you've joined a church, or that you've done any religious works, but that Jesus has saved you from your sin. For those of us that are Christians, we need to evaluate our commitment to Christ, because hope comes from a full commitment to Jesus. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You'll find exciting classes for your keiki, a welcoming church family, and a message from the Bible that's sure to encourage your heart. Join us this Sunday. You belong here.